Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome again to another edition of Lost in Science across Australia on the Community Radio Network. My name is Stu and on the show this week I am going to be talking about light-emitting diodes. Someone actually won uh, a Nobel Prize for Mm -hmm. light-emitting diodes only last year and I'm going to talk about why and what is a light-emitting diode anyway. Chris... Well, hello, Stu. Um, I am talking about fossils. In fact, I'm looking. I'm going to be looking back in time at trying to figure out what are the world's oldest fossils. There were some uh, people been looking for the earliest evidence of life, and there was these fossils, like they were from bacteria, that uh, recent research has published that showing it's probably not actually bacteria. It was a geological thing, but we'll look into that and see if we can figure out what the oldest fossils might be as a result. Um, I can imagine that trying to find a fossil of something that's very squishy is pretty tricky. And small. And small. Yeah. yeah. Small and squishy. Yeah. Not so great Tough. in the fossil making. Yeah, well, people are still trying though. Okay. Good on them. Yeah, don't let that stop you. Um, well, I take a look at fishing in the, on reefs and the implication of taking out the bigger predator fish, which is usually the fish that we like to eat. So leaving the fish there uh, will benefit the health of the reef. So we think about um, dredging and climate change and wild weather as being a, a threat to the reef, but apparently fishing is also a threat. So we'll take a little look at that later. Hmm. On with the show. So since Australia banned the old-fashioned light globes for being too inefficient, they didn't use electricity very efficiently, uh, the alternatives have started to become pretty common in people's lives. So if you're looking at work and around the house, you can't actually buy those old-fashioned light globes anymore. Well, what am I seeing in all the um, the trendy cafes then, these little light bulbs with multiple filaments? Uh, they're getting around stuff. it with a loophole in the law, I think. But also uh, they could possibly be halogen globes. You can see the filament glowing yeah. as they kind of dangle on their mm. They have very little illumination. Mm. Yeah. They just um, make the place look like warm and trendy, yeah. basically. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, you know, the, the, if they want to be inefficient and cost themselves lots of money just for appearance's sake, then good luck to them. I'll take my coffee business elsewhere. Yeah. What you could go to, what you could go to is like one of those fish and chip shops that have the LED displays. They're pretty good. They are. Well, actually, the most efficient replacement for old filament globes is the LED. Well, how about that? Uh, And LED obviously stands for light-emitting diode. Um, So you can tell from the name that it emits light. That's why it's called a light-emitting diode. And a diode sounds, you know, interesting and sciencey and computery and electronic-y. All it means is it's an electronic component with two leads. There's two leads poking into it, which is... Yeah, but it does a particular thing, doesn't it? It does do a particular thing, and it also means that the electricity only flows through in one Mm -hmm. direction. Um, But basically, when you run an electrical charge of the appropriate voltage through a semiconductor in the LED, it releases energy in the form of photons, and it lights up. It's pretty good. It's it's very efficient. Um, So semiconductors are elements that have properties between conductors and insulators, so they're sort of halfway between 
of varying degrees. Uh, and their properties are explained by quantum theory, which is, you know, a really useful thing that's come out of quantum theory. Um, in fact, all modern electronics is based on quantum properties of semiconductors, pretty much. So the first LEDs were effectively laboratory demonstrations, and they emitted very low-intensity infrared light, and so you couldn't see them going off. They could just detect that they were going off, um, which is not, you know, a fantastic demonstration, and probably people didn't think much of them at the time, unless the people, you know, who were working on them. Um, And it wasn't until the early 1960s that visible red LEDs became a possibility um, although we do actually use infrared LEDs all the time because pretty much every oh, yeah. remote control has an infrared LED, which is what's controlling your TV from across the room. Apparently you can see that if you look at it through your smartphone camera, if you're interested. Really? It really just looks like an LED coming on. Have you done that? Uh, I haven't, but I saw a picture of someone doing it. Does that count? Oh, I'm going to check it out. Okay. So our smartphone can see an infrared. I guess you need to have a smartphone to be able to see that. Mm. Yeah, you do, Chris. So the guy who invented the first visible LED also went on to produce the first laser capable of operating at normal room temperatures. So he was a pretty impressive dude. His name is Nick Holonyak, and he worked for General Electric at the time. Um, And he also predicted in 1963, which was the year after he invented the visible LED, that LED lighting would replace the globes that were invented by the founder of his company, Thomas Edison. Hmm. So GE was founded by Thomas Edison. Edison invented the light globe. This guy invented what he said would replace the light globe. But that wasn't going to happen when they could only produce red light because people don't want red lights everywhere around the house. Um, uh, So obviously our eyes are adapted to seeing Hmm. in sunlight. That's, you know, how we've got our vision, uh, which consists of a whole spectrum of colours. But in very basic terms, you've got to combine green and blue and red light, and that appears to our eyes as white light. Um, The other thing is early LEDs were very expensive. So a single LED in the 60s cost about $200. What? In in 1960s money. Um, And it wasn't until the mid-70s they dropped low enough for general uses outside laboratories and industrial applications. Hmm. Um, And even then... They pretty much came in red for a really long time. That was it. You could only get red. So they were, you know, used as little indicator lights on machines uh, and display readouts, including the familiar seven-segment red digital clocks that pretty much form every clock yep. radio you've pretty much ever seen. Mm. Um, so that's that was pretty much what LEDs were used for for a really long time. Uh, and then they developed other colours. <clears throat> um, basically, you've got to get the... Uh, the energy levels of the photons to change to get different colours to come out of them. And then they also coat the inside of the the little cover on the on the diode with different materials that fluoresce at different colours too, oh, yeah. so you can get different colours out of them. Um, but it was only in the 1990s that they developed a blue LED, uh, and the inventors were awarded the Nobel Prize in 2014 for their work, which was based on the actually processed sapphire crystals to get the right Mm. um, frequency. To get a high enough energy, basically, to to get the blue light, yeah. Yeah, so they got the Nobel Prize for that, and I was was a bit surprised that someone who invented a blue LED got a a Nobel Prize because I thought, hey, we've had LEDs for years, what's the big deal? Um, Obviously, the fact that you can replace all sorts of lighting with 
now with white light from an LED source. So they don't make it with sapphires anymore, I'm assuming. Uh, they've probably got synthetic versions of what whatever it was they were using. All right. But um, and sapphires only a semi precious. So it's stone. not only it's not only the white light that you're having there, which I mean the white light is pretty much because as you said it's energy efficient. It's um uh your bike lights now you can have really bright bike lights. I think it's a huge benefit for me personally. Mm. But also. The smartphones, which you were talking about before, Beth, all the um, all the screens that we see are LED displays, yeah. and they have the little red, tiny, tiny red, green, and blue pixels, mm, just and, like the old-fashioned cathode ray yeah. TVs. And that wouldn't be possible without this. Um, so I think it's super invention. tiny LEDs in your screen. Yeah. Oh. Um, the other thing you might think it is an unusual thing to win a Nobel Prize for, but the other thing uh, that these new generation LEDs convert 50% of the electrical energy that they receive to run them into light energy. Mm -hmm. So that's a huge efficiency compared to uh, the old Thomas Edison's electric light globes produced 4% efficiency. So only 4% of the electricity that went to run them turned into light to come out. So that's a huge advance in in, um, electric lighting. And considering... Everyone uses electric lighting for all sorts of things. It's a pretty big advance. It's and kind think, of like the fluorescent globe is a little bit like, like kind of the, the mini disc of the audio world. That, that No one wants the fluorescent globe anymore because they're filled with mercury. Which and the, the, the um, compact fluorescents. Com- it's like, yeah. It's the like the zip disc. Of yeah. the, it, was, it, was a, it, was a, it was a fill-in until our technology got yeah. better. It's like that, it those cameras that had the funny film that was extra wide, which I bought one of those, and that was a, at the moment you thought it was the latest and greatest. Yeah, the APS film. That's right. Mm. That's right. And yeah, and then and then film was no more. Yeah, that's right. Mm. Mm. Well, it's good that these guys got the Nobel Prize. They should be rightly recognised for their light bulb moment. Yeah, bright idea. Science, the final frontier. These are the voyages of Lost in Science, our ongoing mission to explain strange new words, to seek out new science and new explanations, to boldly go where no radio has gone before. So, uh, life on Earth, when did that begin? Ooh, what time is it now? Um, probably, what, a billion years ago? No, it was, it was longer than that. It was longer? longer. That. It is longer than that. It's believed to be about, around about three and a half billion years ago, probably a bit, a bit less than that. And the Earth itself was about four and a half billion years old. So, the best evidence we have for life on Earth is probably about 3.4 billion years old. Um, but, you know, everyone's trying to find out when did it exactly start and, and what was the, the earliest. And so people are looking for trying to find evidence of the earliest life forms, which would have been simple bacteria. I guess it's that moment of like, who are we? When did, when did we start to live on the planet Earth? I can see why people would want to know. It's also how did life begin is, is the other factor as well. Like, is it difficult to make life? Because um, if it's you know if it just pops up easily, then it might mean that there's life all over the place. But if it takes say a billion years for life to get a foothold on Earth, then it tells us something about you know how rare or difficult it is to create life. Um, but of course, there are other theories. There are theories that life may have come from, life may have come from outer space. 
Um, you know, so it'd been seeded from somewhere else. That would depend where, when that life arrived. Um, yeah, there's a whole lot of kind of unknowns, I guess. And so, yeah, figuring out when the earliest life existed is a, is a puzzle for paleontologists and geologists and those sort of people. Is it, is it, are they looking like where DNA or RNA was first found, like, or is it more looking for an organism itself? Well, they're trying to find, yeah, the organisms themselves. I mean, there are other people who are looking for, yeah, chemical signatures of life. And certainly that is, that is something. Um, so, yeah, there, is, there are some people who claim to have found evidence of life that's 3.8 billion years ago. And what they're looking at was certain isotopes of carbon found in rocks and saying that these, yeah, they think that these, um, this, the particular, the ratios, the isotopes of the carbon could only have been produced by uh, life. Um, by but biological activity, by biological activity, yeah. Now this is this is kind of you know a theory or hypothesis, and you know it's not necessarily widely accepted, but it's kind of yeah, it sort of suggested that there may have been some process going on as far back as three point eight billion years ago. And where was this rock? Why did they decide to carbon date it for life? Um, that particular rock was in in um, Greenland. Um, I guess they were looking for old rocks that they and testing them for. Yeah, signs of life. So looking, I guess, for amounts of carbon in the rocks and, and trying to test them to see if that had any evidence of life there. But like I said, that's that's kind of, you know, no one can... I mean, there could be a lot of unknown geological processes going on as well, so we can't say for certain. So it's kind of better when you have things that actually look like they're fossils of bacteria. And that's what people have found, those. They're called microfossils, and they're little tiny... You can find little tiny, you know, cell-like structures within the rocks. Now, until recently... One of the oldest microfossils was believed to be from um, something called the Apex Chert in Western Australia, in the Pilbara region. There's a lot of old rocks in the Pilbara, so you find a lot of these fossils are found around there. That's in Western Australia, of course. And, um, yeah, so this, uh, about 25 years ago or so, um, someone found these, um, these what they look like bacteria fossils in these rocks um, that were 3.46 billion years old. Uh, and they were believed to be the um, the oldest microfossil that had ever been found, but there was a bit of um, a bit of uh, controversy around this because uh, when other geologists looked at the the type of rocks that they were in, they were volcanic rocks formed in volcanic origin, and although today we have you know bacteria that can live in very you know, extreme conditions. Thermophiles. Sort of, yeah, thermophiles. It's kind of a stretch to believe that the earliest life forms would have been thriving in, in such a really... Volcanic rock. Yeah, in volcanic yeah. rock. Um, so, yeah, it was kind of... They threw some doubt on it, but there was, you know, a bit of a controversy raging for a while there. But scientists at University of Western Australia have recently published a paper in which they have looked at a finer level than ever before at these fossils, and they believe they have demonstrated that they are, in fact not life, that they were, in fact, um, a geological thing. Bubbles. Well, yeah, they, they believe that what they are is actually little plates um, similar to mica, uh, little plates of uh, silicate material that um, adsorbs carbon. So it kind of carbon attaches to it. And so it's accreted carbon after the structures existed. Uh, and that is how they saw these little kind of cell-like structures with carbon associated with them. Um, they point out that the, the cells themselves, they're kind of all different lengths and they're more associated with like crystal sizes than they are with any known biological processes or bacteria. Sounds very plausible to me. What do you think? Well, I think, it, I think they're probably, probably right. I mean, it's, it's fascinating to think that there can be these things that look like life but um, aren't actually um, real bacteria. I don't remember a few years ago there was a um, controversy about the Martian meteorite that was found to have little tiny... 
um, structures that were looked under electron microscope looked very similar to bacteria. Those ones, though, they were, I, think, I don't think they were microfossils. I think those were nanofossils. They were so small. They were smaller than any known earth bacteria. Oh, was this, was this the nanobes? Yeah, some, yeah, they're, they're the way too small. They just, but when you look at them under electron microscope, they look like little tiny bacteria. Mm. Um, but yeah, but they they never found any DNA or anything associated with them either. No, when they've analysed them chemically, they they don't appear to be um, actual bacteria. And like I said, they're they're much smaller than than yeah any life known on Earth. Mm. So it's it shows that the things can look like bacteria mm. that aren't bacteria. So yeah, but it, okay, it's in this paper that um that they published that they they looked at some other examples and they found some other ones. From um, a what's it called? Sorry, I have to look at the name here. Um, Strelly Pool, which is also in Western Australia, in in the Pilbara, uh, and they found microfossils there, which are three point four three billion years old, and they think they um they're pretty confident that those ones actually are uh, evidence of life because they um you know they they look more like bacteria, I suppose they. They kind of there's evidence there of the right chemicals. There's been some sort of processes going on, biological processes going on. They're consistent with what we know bacteria are like today, and yeah, they're much better evidence, I believe. Of and then they're not in volcanic rocks. Then no, these ones are actually they're interesting. They're in a sandstone okay. that, um, and they're kind of between the grains, the quartz grains in the sandstone. They're these little tiny microfossils. Um, yeah, and so three point four three billion years old. And these ones, it's kind of, you know, they they provide they produce evidence for those. They're not saying 100%, but they, they believe these ones are, are microfossils. So that's not that much younger than 3.46 billion years ago. So we're still looking around that time of around, you know, 3.4, 3.5 billion years ago, perhaps when you have the first evidence of, of bacterial life forms. Uh, and yeah, we will keep looking, I guess, and try to stretch the date back even further um, and work out when life did first gain a foothold or a, a bacterial pseudopod hold. On, on the Earth. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you are listening to A Lost in Science. So I have PhD candidate April Bowden on Lost in Science here on the show, um, talking to us from Townsville. April, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Now, you've recently done some research into fish populations and reef health and found something very interesting. Can you tell me about your research? Yeah, our research really focuses on the importance of predatory fish in maintaining the balance and structure of coral reef fish communities. So coral reefs naturally have a high proportion of predatory fish, and these include species such as coral trout, snappers, emperors, all of these ubiquitous fish which are actually very popular fishing targets. So our research wanted to look at what the effects of removing these predators uh, through fishing are on fish communities on the Great Barrier Reef. And what we found was that once you lose a certain amount of these predators in very heavily fished areas, there are impacts that reverberate down the food chain. So we're finding changes to the food webs in these very heavily fished areas. But what we also found was that the current system of marine reserves, which has been set up on the Great Barrier Reef, is very effective at protecting these predators 
In some areas, we have five times the number of coral trout, for example, in marine reserves compared to fished areas close by. Um, and because these predators are being protected so well, uh, these food webs and the health of the ecosystem is being protected very well as well. So can you tell us the role that these predator fish have on the general ecosystem? Like, How do they contribute to reef health? Yeah, so from their position at the top of the food chain, they exert what's called top-down control. So they're controlling all of the other species that are lower down the food chain than they are. And in this way, the balance of the community is maintained. So coral reefs are very, very complex systems. They have incredibly complicated food webs and each member of that food web is contributing in its own unique way. Um, but the predators which are sitting at the top of that food web are very important in, I guess, keeping these lower level prey species in check and at their um, naturally lower numbers. When you talk about these marine reserves, is it that the predator fish that are living there then go to other areas in the reef, contribute to ecosystems in those areas? They certainly can. So within the marine reserves, um, the marine reserves on the Great Barrier Reef are all completely no-take zones. So once fishing was stopped there and those marine reserves were um, brought about, some of which were in 2004, some of which were a little bit older, we saw an increase in these predator numbers, um, which is really fantastic. So they're building back up within these marine reserves. What we're just starting to see now that protection has been going on for long enough is that they can actually export their larvae out to uh, areas that are being fished. So they're supporting the fishery, but some of these larvae also go to uh, other marine reserves. So this network of fished areas and marine reserves has been set up quite specifically for that purpose. And some other colleagues at James Cook University have done this research in the larvae as well. Do you think we need to do anything more in terms of managing um, the reef or is this kind of enough... Um, I think the marine reserves are doing very well. Um, I think it's important to note that the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park is a multiple-use zoning system. That means it's set up uh, to allow all sorts of different activities to occur on the reef. So we have commercial activities such as fishing, we have recreational activities such as recreational fishing, but also boating and diving, tourism and that sort of thing, existing alongside areas which have been designated as no-take marine reserves for conservation outcomes. And I think this balance is uh, doing very, very well within this marine network system. What I would suggest, uh, given the ecological consequences of fishing that we've seen in our study, is just ongoing management and uh, ongoing monitoring of how these predator-prey interactions are playing out over time. So not just focusing on the targeted species when we're assessing sustainability of fishing practices, but making sure that we're keeping an eye on what's going on on the food webs and what's going on in a more holistic um, perspective when we're looking at mitigating fisheries impacts. And what kind of length of time like, do you need to get a good study, a good idea of fish populations? Are we talking like a long-term study of ecosystems here? Yes. Well, some of these uh, interactions often take decades to come about. So um, when we're looking at these uh, food web effects, 
they don't just come about, you know, a year or two after a marine reserve has been reinstated or a year or two after, you know, some fishing impacts have started to happen. They take quite a long time to sort of show themselves. And studies uh, from other systems around the world have shown that they're often document- documented on a decadal time scale. So it may be that we're just starting to see some of these flow-on effects happen now. Um, so I think uh, it's time to start just monitoring the situation and just seeing um, how these ecosystems are being affected. This is really the first data to come out which is showing these sort of effects on non-targeted species. And what did you actually do in this study? Did it involve you um, scuba diving and counting fish? Like what, what did it entail? It certainly did, yeah. It, it involved... Um, several hundred hours of being under the water and scuba diving and counting fish. Uh, We went to areas that we knew encompassed a range of fishing impacts. So we went to marine reserves. We went to areas that are only used by recreational fishers. And we went to areas which are open to commercial and recreational fishing. And when we went there, we went underwater and we assessed these fish populations by counting lots and lots of different kinds of fish to understand how those roles were changing according to fishing. We also looked at things like coral cover and and other sort of basic attributes about the structure of the reef uh, as well. So, yeah, lots and lots of diving, lots and lots of fish surveys and um, all up and down the Great Barrier Reef. That sounds like a really good job, actually. Yeah, certainly, certainly very enjoyable. Yeah. We're very fortunate to be able to get to some of these places. From, so you're based in Townsville at James Cook University, but you looked at north and south of, from there, is that right? That's right, yeah. This study encompassed reefs right down uh, from right at the bottom of the Great Barrier Reef, so in the Capricorn Bunkers region, which is roughly off Gladstone, all the way up to the Ribbon Reef, which is roughly off uh, Cooktown. Um, Well, thank you, April. It's been great to have you on the show and good luck with further research. Thanks very much. Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. Come to the end of another episode of Lost in Science on the Community Radio Network. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at lostinsci at gmail.com or you can leave a comment on our blog, which is lostinscience.com. 
www.wordpress.com. And we're also on Facebook and Twitter if you want to look for us there. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If that's not enough information, you can tune in again next week when Chris, Beth and Stuart get Lost in Science! You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.